This episode of Recording Studio Rockstars is brought to you by OWC, Whisper Room, and Eventide. So get ready to rock. Just because the client approves it doesn't mean it's right. So sometimes in a mix you might miss uh, like an edit click or a pop, like rumble here or there. You really have to pay attention and focus to the entire song, not just to the sonics and what you're changing and mastering, but just to the detail of it to not let those little things slip through. Let a couple pops and clicks slide through and that's gonna be in the final master. It's kind of our job to help take care of that stuff. Welcome to Recording Studio Rockstars. I'm Lid Shaw, and this is the podcast created to help you become a rock star of the recording studio. If you're sick of bothering the neighbors when you are trying to record your music or ruining your recordings with outside noises, but you're not ready to spend a ton of money on permanent studio construction yet, then consider getting a Whisper Room ISO booth for your studio. Whisper Room offers the instant solution for a comfortable, quiet, ventilated, portable ISO booth with easy line of sight for recording vocals, guitar amps, or even drums. Get 10% off the 4x4 or 4x6 booth when you mention recording studio rock stars. Go to whisperroom.com or click the link in the show notes below. What do Michael Brower, Joe Ciccarelli, Mike Kozowski, Dave Pensato, and George Massenberg all have in common? They all have great things to say about Eventide. Originating in a New York City basement in 1971 with the original Instant Phaser and H910 Harmonizer, Eventide continues to transform the sound of music with the iconic H9000 Harmonizer, visionary guitar effects like the H9 pedal, and now a whole suite of incredible plugins for your studio. Go to eventide.com to learn more or click the link in the show notes below. This episode is sponsored by OWC, Otherworld Computing, which you can find at OWC.com, your trusted source for memory and speed upgrades, DIY installs, and used Macs for your studio. Let OWC focus on keeping your studio Mac in killer condition so that you can focus on making great music. Why ditch your existing Mac when you can take your studio far into the future with OWC? Learn more at OWC.com and learn how you can supercharge your studio Mac. The speed to create, the capacity to dream. Find out how awesome your Mac can be at OWC. Howdy, Rockstars. It's your host, Lid Sean. Welcome to Recording Studio Rockstars, bringing you into the studio to learn from recording professionals so that you can make your best record ever and be a rock star of the studio yourself. My guest today is Kim Rosen, a mastering engineer working out of her own studio, Knack Mastering, located in Ringwood, New Jersey. Kim's mastered six Grammy-nominated albums in the past four years, one winning the Best Folk Album with Amy Mann, three nominated in Best Blues Albums categories for Betty LeVette, Victor Wainwright, and Teresa James, as well as two nominations in the Best Engineered Album Non-Classical category, Bonnie Raitt and the Milk Carton Kids. Kim grew up in Northampton, Massachusetts, and poured herself into the vibrant college music scene there. In summer of 2002, a friend turned on to a mastering studio in New Jersey that was looking for an intern, and Kim jumped at the opportunity moving to New Jersey to begin her journey at West West Side Music with Alan Douches, who has also been a guest on the podcast on episode 92. So check that out, rock stars. 
In 2009, after working her way up to staff mastering engineer at West West Side, Kim decided to go out on her own and built a growing list of clients that includes producers and engineers such as Ryan Freeland, Ed Cherney, Joe Henry, Matt Rosbang, Paul Q. Caldery, and artists such as Rian and Giddens, Amy Mann, Belly, Bonnie Raitt, Billy Bragg, Winona Judd, The Birds of Chicago, The Bar Brothers Over the Rhine, Sarah Jaffe, Anthony Green, and Title Fight, to name just a few. Kim and her husband Dave also developed a custom piece of analog tube gear for Kim's room and found it so useful that they decided to build a brand around it and they launched Whitestone Audio Instruments at the NAMM show in 2018 and the P331 tube loading amplifier, as well as other pieces now in development, are distributed worldwide through Wave Distro. So, Rockstars, please welcome Kim Rosen to Recording Studio Rockstars. Kim, are you ready to rock? Always. It's great to have you on the show. I know you and I have been um, sort of hinting at doing this for quite a while as we run into each other at various NAM events and things like that. So I'm glad we were finally able to do it. Yeah, me too. You know, one of my first introductions to you was actually uh, simultaneously discovering Matt Boudreaux's podcast, Working Class Audio, because I think the first episode of his that I listened to was you as a guest on there. And I was, you know, winding down treacherous mountain roads somewhere in West Virginia or something like that. And it was cool to, to, uh, to hear you talk about your whole studio and everything that you do. Yeah, thanks. Uh, Matt's podcast is really great, and I had a great time talking to him. I really like his format, kind of digging deeper into um, really behind the scenes of like running the business and, and life of, of being an engineer, being in the audio industry. Indeed. We'll probably talk a little bit about that stuff, and I'll probably geek out on some of the nerdy tech stuff, too, and just, you know, yeah. ask you questions about mastering. but. Uh, let the rock stars know more about how you got started out in recording and, you know, briefly give us a, a, a backstory of how you got to where you are now. Yeah, it's, it's great to be able to look at it going backwards, but, you know, really at the time I was 22 years old. Uh, a lot of my friends were graduating college and, you know, they had a, a plan or a path and I really was kind of stuck in that. I wasn't sure what I wanted to do. The one thing that I did know um, was that I loved music. Music was just such a huge part um, of my childhood, my teenage years. I did a lot of um, dancing, tap dancing, ballet um, when I was younger. And so music was a very, very important and vibrant part of that. Um, And aside from the dancing component, I got into musicals and uh, vocal lessons and performing. And I really just immerse myself in it. Um, many of my friends know me as the person who's always playing music or always turning them on to something new to listen to and always having it on in my car. So it was very natural that I tried to find something that kind of, you know, lifted that up and, and incorporated that as a part of it. And I watched the movie Almost Famous and there was something about it that just, you know, as a young kid, kind of clicked with me. And I was like, hmm, you know, making music, recording music, this is really cool. This is really awesome. And right about the same time is when um, a friend of mine said, hey, my, my pal is looking for an intern and he runs a mastering studio in New Jersey. Uh, I think you should meet him. And I think that, that this could be really great. 
I had no experience and I was like, sounds cool. I went and I met him. That was Alan Douches. Nice. Um, and he, he actually was very open and appreciative of the fact that I really had no previous training or schooling. It really gave him like a blank slate to help me learn things the way that he needed them done um, and mastering especially. And just there wasn't any kind of notions that I came with, came in with that he had to correct or change or um, so yeah, he hired me in July of 2002. I moved to New Jersey and I started production work, um, which is just sequencing and making final, um, reference CDs at the time. This was well before FTP. And so we were still making hard copies of CD references to send to clients for review. There was no like one song, two song, any of that. So it was a lot of making CDs and FedExing them to clients and uh, backing stuff up at night. Uh, I spent a lot of time in his room uh, listening to music as I was doing backups at night. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's really where the whole uh, critical listening thing started. So after doing production for a while, I started getting into doing some fixes and changes and really messing around with my own projects. I had a good friend who was into electronic music and producing so he threw me a couple of tracks to master. Nice. And, and, and just, you know, dove in head first. And really, at first it was because I still had such basic knowledge of, um, you know, outboard analog gear and what it did. A lot of my time, and it was an excessive amount of time on these first couple of songs, was really spent just like, what does all this stuff do? How, how does it manipulate the sound? Um, and I worked on the couple tracks until I thought I sound, they sounded better. And I left them for Alan to listen to. And the next day when I came in, after he had been in, um, he just sat me down. He said, I listened to the songs. Congratulations on your first mastering session. You did great. And from there, it was just more of um, Alan, was a ve- Alan had a very, very busy studio. Um, and that was one of the things that I... I recognized really early on, it, it was so busy. There was so much volume going through there. And he works on so much indie stuff um, and a lot of metal. But he just had plenty of clients that were like so trusting in him. And he said, Kim can master this. And they didn't have the budget or the time to wait for Alan because Alan routinely would be booking about two months out. Mm-hmm. And people would just start scheduling with me and so I would spend my days working and doing production for Alan being his assistant and then when he left his room at night I would go in there and I would master Um, and it started off small but then it got pretty busy and I spent a good amount of time there uh, mastering all night you know tons and tons of releases and, and really cut my teeth and I think that that's the thing that's the hardest for anybody getting into mastering especially is volume is being able to like start a project, work on it, and get another one. That consistent work really helps you to refine, make mistakes, correct them, you know, really get your ears used to and trained to like hear things, small things, because that's really a lot of what mastering is. You have to be really tuned into um, things so that you can help them or bring them out or play them down. Uh, Yeah, and so... That was really it. it. Was it was very it was a very exciting time. That's pretty awesome, and I mean, you're absolutely right. Having that ability to just um, do so many, so many projects and do things over and over again, and really iterate, is where you get those. You really get a chance to build up those skills. 
So that's pretty impressive. So you're doing the third, the third shift is your first thing. Uh, you know, one of my first uh, offerings of a job when I was interning at a studio was to come in at midnight and fix things till eight in the morning. And I said, I didn't want to do it. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's not for everyone. I mean, at the point that I had been working with Alan enough, um, I knew that I didn't want to be doing production forever. I, I didn't want to be doing that and only that. And I knew that this was the way to get to something more. So I'm going to do what needs to be done. And, and that's really just uh, a willingness to kind of adapt and multitask is really just a great quality to have if you're getting into engineering and you're trying to get your foot in the door. Um, not only, you know, and so, yes, I did production, but I cleaned the toilets. I made the coffee. Um, at the time, Alan's studio was in Tenafly, New Jersey, and he had a live, it was a very interesting setup. It, it, it originally was a home dentist's office and him and his wife bought the house and they converted the dental office section into the mastering studio. And so there was a front lounge and an office and then the mastering room. And behind the mastering room, there was a live room. Um, Alan started off with tracking and producing and he had uh, an engineer that would come in and that would sometimes track at night. His name is Jesse Cannon. He's also been on your show. Oh, yeah. And so very early on when I started this product, production and training with Alan, he had me, you know, kind of sit in and assist a recording session with Jesse to kind of help me, help give me like a, a, just a look into what else there was in engineering. Maybe I really liked um, recording. Uh, maybe I liked it more than mastering. <laughs> but after that first session working with Jesse, I was like, nope, this is, this is not, this is not for me. I like sitting in this room by myself, uh, you know, or with a client, but, you know, having a little bit more structure, having a little bit more of a, this is our goal. We're going to get it done in one day, two days. Um, yeah. I, I, it was helpful for me to determine that, yes, mastering is it. You really need to um, spend a lot of time with other people if you're going to make the records, you know, before mastering. And it's a, it's one of the things that's really special about mastering and can be about mixing too, is you're, you're more likely to have time by yourself working on something. Right. Which would be helpful. And it's nothing against people in general, but for the sake of efficiency and getting work done in a, in a timely way and in the best way, um, and best environment for listening, for you know, being critical and, and making the best choices, really. Yeah. You know, working yeah. alone sometimes is great for that. Well, just listening to you tell your story, it's pretty clear that you're you're very together about how you do things. So it's a, you're a great speaker, by the way. It's you have a wonderful ability to just sort of um, tell the story of of all this stuff. Thanks, thanks. Uh, now you've also been. I know you've been uh, speaking at some events and panels and things like um, Welcome to 1979. What are some other places that you've enjoyed getting a chance to kind of share your story and teach? Um. Sharing my story is interesting. Um, I, I, it's really mostly at panels I'm talking about a specific topic. I think it's more interviews. So I think in Tape Op, I was interviewed. I was able to talk a bit about my story and how I got started. But I haven't really had too many outlets where that's what I'm doing. You know, right. I'm talking about my story. Well, I think it's interesting. I like hearing uh, uh, other people's story about how they got started. You know, it's pretty individual to everyone. Um, and I know that a lot of people who are trying to get into the business, it's most helpful for them to hear how people get started. Um, because it's not 
always the way you think it is. <laughs> yeah, indeed, indeed. And you had a really unique opportunity with your internship where you didn't have to go to a recording school first, you know, one of the many that exist now. Right. And, um, and, and then have that as a qualification to start. Um, so what, what do you remember about um, the things that, that gave you the skills to be able to do that initially without actually knowing all the tech side of it? So at first, it was literally Alan telling me, okay, here are the key commands that you're doing for the functions that you're doing within Pro Tools. This is how you sequence. This is how you make a fade. This, and I just followed this list for a couple months and really had no idea of, of what or why I was doing this, but I was doing it and being careful not to make mistakes. Um, very conscientious. I was very, oh yes, very focused. That's good. Um, but once, once you start doing that, you start realizing like you run into a problem and you, you, all of a sudden you can't follow the list and you have to figure out what you did wrong. So it's really just spending time, you know, learning all this Pro Tools stuff. Um, but beyond that, learning the mastering side of things, really what it became was my ability, the time that I had avail available to me in the studio to mess around with EQ plugins, with compressor plugins, um, and hear what they did. And sometimes I would make three or four different versions with different settings on different plugins and take them out to my car and listen to them, mm -hmm. compare them. How do they sound different? Why does it sound good in the mastering room and it doesn't sound good out here? I mean, I would do that over and over and over again, spending a lot of time, you know, more time than was necessary in the beginning, but it really kind of was necessary because this is how, was, how I learned, um, you know, what, what all this meant, what, what all this did, what is necessary, what is not, what is too much, what is not. And after spending this time, um, you start to realize that you make version one, two, three, you go listen to them. And you're like, wow, I don't like version two and version three. I thought I was improving. I really like what I did mm -hmm. on that version one. So you start to see this pattern. You start to see a pattern in things that you're doing with EQ and what you're cutting and what you're doing and, and patterns in um, how you're using compressors and how you're routing things. And then it all starts to click and fit together a little bit more. So at first, it's like this puzzle that isn't put together and you have all the pieces and you can see them and you can use them. But then they finally fit together and you're like, wow, I see this now, what I'm doing, what works, what doesn't. Um, and then also starting to trust myself more because I would see oftentimes that I would do, you know, multiple versions and I would always end up preferring that first version. So it was a huge indicator to me to, you know, start trusting your instincts, tr start trusting, um, you know, your first take on what you're doing. Um, and that was, that was a really great feeling to get there. And it took a, you know, it took a good amount of time. It was not very quick to arrive there. But that was, you know, th that was, that was the way I learned. Well, and sometimes, and sometimes in the beginning, when I would have a really hard time getting something sounding just right, I couldn't, I couldn't improve it the way that I wanted to. I would come in the next day, I would ask Alan to, you know, master this one song. I would watch him work. I would listen to it. I would take it back into the room at night, and I would try to match it. Um, and that's how I would try to like kind of hone in on what I was doing and what I was hearing. 
That's a cool idea, you know, being able to sort of study the masters and and you just so happen to be sitting next to one all day long. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) It's pretty lucky. Um, And it also, what you're saying about uh, mastering and doing these revisions and also sometimes the first move was good and then you took it too far, it it sounds very similar to descriptions of mixing too, where we can do the same thing in the studio and, and really just keep overworking it. And it's encouraging to hear you remind us that if we're taking forever to work on stuff, that's okay at the yeah. beginning stages, you know. For oh, sure. yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Recording Studio Rockstars Academy is the place you can go to take your recording, mixing, and mastering to the next level. And you can start right now with my free introduction to mixing course, Mix Master Bundle. This course will show you how to get pro-sounding mixes from your home studio with free and stock plugins and Pro Tools. And the best part is that these mixing techniques will work for you in any DAW, whether you are in Logic, Cubase, PreSonus Studio One, Reaper, or anything else. Are you ready to make your best record ever? Then go to Mix Master Bundle to get started for free now or look for the clickable link in the show notes of this episode. Well, so Kim, I like to ask guests on the podcast to share an inspirational quote to kick us off. Um, Have you got anything that has inspired you or you want to share with us? Absolutely. Uh, One of my favorite quotes is, luck is what happens when preparation meets opportunity. Nice. I think I've heard that before and I like that one. Yeah. Um, It is, uh, it's, it's, empowering. It's an empowering quote because it, it sort of puts the, um, I mean, opportunity happens and just comes at you. Although I think we're sort of presented with a whole lot more opportunities than we recognize at first. Um, but it but it gives you an opportunity to do something instead of well, just waiting for luck. Right. And also sometimes we might not feel prepared, but if we move forward as if we are prepared, we, we're not even aware that we're prepared yet. We just kind of go for it that's when a lot of times you can surprise yourself and be like, wow, you know, and also that there isn't, it isn't always just luck. You know, you have to, to be ready to take on the challenge. So whether it's being prepared or just being able to step up, um, I think it's just a great way to look at it and remind yourself of. Yeah. Well, it also gives you permission to feel a whole lot better about putting in all that time when you're not being paid for a session. When yeah. You're just working on your skills with the tools or you're you're making sure that all your instruments and, and tools in your studio are working in tip-top shape. Yeah. Not feel like you're just kind of, you know, spinning your wheels at that point. Yeah. Um, well, so, uh, you know, one of the other things that I'd like to ask is if you want to share a story about something that was sort of an important failure for you in that learning process that became a real um, learning experience. Um. Well, I guess it might be two smaller parts. Um, When I left uh, working for Alan, I was actually fired, which is a longer, unimportant story. But what was important about that was that it was a huge change for me. And it was kind of like just a real blow to the ego, just how I felt about what I was doing. Um, And I wasn't really sure initially what was going to happen. And I got a lot of encouragement from friends and engineers that I work with saying you can do it. And the the idea at the time, it was 2009, I just had my son, uh, so he was a baby. The idea of starting my own mastering studio, which was never really on my radar, I didn't really have plans for that, was like, how can I possibly do this? This is such a huge kind of, you know, 
thing to undertake. And with that encouragement, um, I just started off in the box. And I very quickly realized that I wasn't able to achieve um, really what I was used to doing um, without analog outboard gear. So we broke out the credit cards. And my husband, who has just been my biggest champion and greatest supporter and also has a ton of musical sense of his own. He, he's been in bands his whole life. He's a guitar player. Um, he loves music as much as I do. He found gear on eBay and bought first set of converters, Library Blues, which I still have and use, um, a Fern VT7 compressor, which I still love and use. It's like yeah. the, cor- the cornerstone of my mastering chain, and uh, Avalon 2055 EQ. And once we got those things, it all clicked and it started just coming together and um, business came in, you know, little bit by little bit, all, you know, clients I had previous, previously worked with and then just kept growing from there. So it went from being a really challenging and difficult situation for me personally to um, building and growing something. And after a few years of it, I was like, wow, like, I don't think I would ever be doing the work that I'm doing if I had not been let go from the studio that I was working at. Uh, yeah, and so yeah. it was, it was like, this is, this is really kind of crazy. Um, and so then you really just let go of whatever you held on to from your past and you, you, it allows you to move forward. Uh, I recently saw um, birds built a nest um, near my, on, near my porch on the house and they kicked the little baby bird out of the nest and then had to <laughs> land it on the ground. I had to keep the dog away from it, but it had to learn how to fly. And it kind right. of reminds me of that a little bit, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, so now another thought is in 2009, um, I wonder if it was more challenging to do the things you wanted to do in the box at that point and whether that has changed a decade later I feel like it has for me mixing, but I'm curious what your thoughts are. And then again, at the same time, I probably also made some of my favorite mixes in the box in 2009. But what are your thoughts there? Yeah, I think really that digital has come so, so far since then. So yes, I do really think that it would be a little bit more um, achievable to to do good work in the box. And I know uh, an astounding amount of mastering engineers that do, um, that just get phenomenal results and they choose to work, you know, all digital and it works for them and their clients. And that's great. So yeah, it, it may have been a little bit different. However, you know, I, I am so, it is so natural for me to be using outboard gear. And while I do um, incorporate plugins into my chain and how I work, it's really not as enjoyable as using my outboard gear. It's just not for me. And because uh, a good amount of what I do is Americana. It's really vibey um, music. It just seems like the, the right fit, the best fit for me to get where I want to be um, using analog as opposed to digital. But it would have been a little bit easier to maybe maintain that in-the-box startup um, if I had started you know, now as opposed to 2009. Yeah. Well, I know that you also started uh, an audio company called Whitestone Audio. And tell, maybe tell us a little bit about this piece of outboard gear, the P331 tube loading amplifier. I, yes. I, I said the whole name right there. <laughs> yes. So this is, this is a really, really cool unit. Um, it started off as a custom piece 
my husband was brainstorming with me um, because he, we talk a lot about how I use my gear and what I'm doing. Um, I don't always use my compressor to compress per se so much as I use it to run the audio through to impart, you know, the, the electronics of the unit into the audio. So after some research, we found there really wasn't much on the market that was, was kind of useful for that specifically. So he came up with a concept and we needed to find someone to help us implement it, an electrical engineer. Uh, and so we were driving up to New Hampshire to buy an MCI tape machine from someone that was selling it. Mm-hmm. And we met him. It was a very interesting guy. And he had mastered, mastered a bit and he had made a lot of his own custom gear. And my husband was just like, hey, I have this idea. Could you help us? He said, no, I want to get out of this. But here's the name of another guy. He lives one town over. You should tell him about this. I'm sure he'd love to help you. And so that guy that we were put in touch with, his name is Chris Mackinson. And he became our electrical engineer to help us along with this project. And... It took us five years of developing and building and tweaking um, to get it just right. And so what it is, is it's a, as you said, a tube loading amplifier. And the main section of it is the loading section. And so there's a knob that you turn. And as you increase um, the loading, so to speak, what you're doing is you're loading into the tube more, but we're also auto padding the gain. So you're only going to hear what the tube is doing, that harmonic distortion um, and as you crank it more, you're just going to hear a little bit more of that warmth, that color, but subtle color. Um, we like to emphasize that while this is not a subtle box, it's not a, a heavy-handed color piece. It's not something that's mm-hmm. going to really, really change what you're doing too much, so much as enhance it and in really great ways. And in this loading section, um, there's a couple of different options and ways that you can load. There's a pre, post, and open setting on the tube. Pre means that you're padding the gain before the tube gets loaded so that you don't hear any volume change as you load the tube. Post is you're padding the gain, and this is happening happening internally in the unit, so you don't have to do this. Um, post is the, it's padding the gain after the tube is loaded, and open is we're not going to pad the gain at all. So you're going to hear volume increase as well as more tube saturation. That's super cool. Um it does make me well. Let me let me stick to this for just one sec. So I know that you also have like a really uh, special tube in there too. And do you want to tell the story behind that a little bit? Yeah. So it's a six SM seven tube, um, which is really more of an audiophile tube. It's not really a um, uh, just kind of analog engineering gear gear tube. It's not the same thing. It's a very clean tube. Uh, tubes are inherently uh, they like to distort, especially you know guitar amps and stuff like that. These tubes are very clean. They don't need a lot of inner circuitry to clean them up. Um, and that's really what we were looking for. We were looking for something that's a little bit more gentle that we can add to as necessary, not something that was already really distor- distorted from the beginning that we have to clean up. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was the decision by- behind that. And it, it's really worked out great. We're getting so much awesome feedback. In addition to this loading section, which is the you know the main part of, of the unit itself. We do have a transformer option, a couple different ways that you can load a transformer to get another layer um, of something. And then we have a lift circuit, which will add high frequencies, low frequencies, or both together. And this is a really cool parallel lift circuit. Um, 
it's <laughs> I'm going to have to read this because this is where I get a little sure, sure. trip trippy with what it is. Here it is, lift circuit. It's a gentle parallel filter that enhances the highs, the lows, or both. The audio passes through the lift circuit before the loading circuit. So with any of the lift filters engaged, the audio is passed unscathed through the fully balanced circuitry and blended with harmonic content of the lift and loading circuits working in concert. So it's like not a uh, in-your-face lift. It's, it's a really nice, especially in mastering or mix bus, you just turn it on and it just gives that little, little bump in the low end or in the top end that just sometimes can just finish what you're working on and bring it together. Um, it's that's been really, a, it's been really cool. exciting to use. Well, that sounds super cool. And I mean, w- hearing you talk about um, the things that you do in mastering, it makes me think about, you know, and, and the fact that it's a hi-fi tube, for example, it makes me think about like when we're, when we're listening to music on our, uh, you know, playback systems, uh, the things that make them sound better are often like subtle things that just improve the sound quality and that can get us really excited. Uh, right. But it also makes me want to ask you the question, in mastering, um, you know, the difference between sort of enhancing the audio that you're working on versus the times, and, and the question, I guess, is, are there also times and tools that you use where you really want to change the sound? Or is it almost always like a, a subtle enhancement? Um, I would say, yes, there can be times when I want to kind of add a little bit more. And sometimes that could be because of the recording, um, because of the mix itself, things that are done in the box. Um, it might, yeah, it might just need a little bit extra. And I can do that with more EQ, more low end. And this unit in that case, the this P331 in this case, yeah, I can crank the loading on the tubes a little bit more and, and fill in that space and give it a little bit more tooth, a little bit more of just that analog vibe that sometimes when you're using plugins, you can get, and, and but it's really, there's just nothing like it. We like to say that it's it's worth converting for this unit. It's worth going out of the box to convert, to get this on your chain, on your mix bus, um, and what it can add to it. So. Cool. Cool. Well, um, let me ask you this. This is sort of um, off the off the the uh, P three thirty one topic and more just general mastering question. In your experience, what are some of the things that people um, might mistakenly hope for in mastering when they're delivering a mix? Like, oh, I thought you were gonna do this or something. What what are some lessons for us as mixers in terms of things that? Uh, Maybe people expect mastering to do, and that's not the right place for it, whereas mixing is the right place for it. Well, I think it tends to come more from um, artists and less from mix engineers. Mix engineers, uh, you know, usually have a pretty decent grasp on what can and can't be done um, in mastering. But a lot of times, um, artists, if they've stepped away from their mix engineer and they're in control of their session and they're moving on to mastering, sometimes it, it will be like, you know, can you you know, boost my vocal here, or can you take, you know, can you lower the guitar part or raise this guitar solo a little bit? You know, these things, they can be done, but it's, you don't always get it with the best result. And I always, always, if a client is asking for something, I'll say, I can try this. I can, you know, MS processing sometimes can really help achieve what the client is looking for. But a lot of times they'll be like, if you really, you're not happy with it, how I can make the change, you may want to consider going back to your mix engineer right. and having them make it. But I don't think there's there's too many times when people are making like outlandish 
claims or wishes to what what I should or could be doing in mastering. A lot. It's more often that people are like, "What are you supposed to do? <laughs> right? What am I supposed to be listening for?" Well, I, I guess one of the things that I've scratched my head about, you know, when I was learning mixing and mastering was like wondering if mastering was the stage that you get that kind of in-your-face compressed rock band sound, if that's the sort of thing you're looking for, or if that's really supposed to happen more at mixing and mastering isn't, you know, you're asking the wrong person to try and give it that that glue. So here's the thing with that. It's really interesting. You know, analog gear plugins, they, they all kind of affect um, audio in different ways. You think they might be predictable, but sometimes they aren't. Um, and if you work with, if as a mastering engineer, you work with a mix engineer on a regular basis, then you can hone in on the ability to do what you're describing, meaning the mix engineer provides you with like a little bit more open um, and not very compressed mix and that you use your gear to really give it more glue, more cohesive sound, more compression, like really slam it and it sounds great. But just assuming that you can do that being a mix engineer, never having worked with a mastering engineer before, is the chances are you, you it may end up falling short of of achieving what you're what you're hoping it to. Um, mm-hmm. m- more times, you really just want a mix engineer to get the mix sounding the way they want it. Um, but like I said, if you work with someone on a regular basis and you have had a long relationship of of things going a certain way or being able to like fine-tune that process of getting a more open mix and really being able to slam it and work your analog gear. I mean, that would be the reason for that. So if as a mix engineer, you don't work with a lot of analog outboard gear, you don't have a lot of great sounding plugins, you want the mastering engineer to really use what they have because it sounds better to you guys, then yes, then that's the perfect example where that could work. But with plugins sounding better these days, that's less and less necessary and i think it's a, a little bit more i don't know it's just a better idea to just get that mix sounding right get it sounding the way you want because then there will be less prizes when it comes to mastering yeah that was some of the first advice i got from you know pro mastering engineers was like no just get your mix the way you want it before right. you deliver it to us and i was like oh okay <laughs> right right you know i thought i was a. Uh, um, I remember thinking like, oh, I, I, like I've done what I can do, but uh, they're going to make it sound like that, you know, crystal right. algae mix or whatever it was <laughs> I was referencing. <laughs> um, and one of the bands that you did master that really I thought sounded great and and made me think of um, this question too was the Roswell Kid, which yes. was a super cool. Tell tell us about those guys. So I wasn't really so much with those guys, um, but that man, that's what I cut my teeth on. I cut my teeth on so much rock, hardcore, just <clears throat> really just awesome music. But that just came from the engineer. And who was the engineer on that? I'm actually going to pull that up right now. Okay. You know, I didn't, I didn't know anything about those guys, but then when I heard it, I was like, how come I haven't heard of these guys before? <laughs> but that, that, that's more to do with me, I'm sure, than, than anything else. Uh, but it very, very much like a, um, you know, like a massive in-your-face Weezer kind of uh, sonic quality, which was really uh, cool. So that came actually from Side One Dummy. And I've done a lot of uh, record label out in California. So I've done a lot of work with them. They're a really awesome label. Um, and they sent me the project. They were just like, yeah. They also did a yearly Warped Tour compilation that was like two discs. 
50 songs, a ridiculous amount of audio that I had to fit on two CDs. But yeah, that came from um, that came from the label. They just liked working with me and they sent it my way. And I just can't find out who the engineer was on that. But it was a lot of fun to work on. <clears throat> you know, uh, in the middle of all my my folk music and my Americana, which I love, really, really love. Um, it's always nice to have something that just kind of gets your energy up. Yeah, well, so um, how is mastering a rock artist uh, like like Roswell Kidd or like Belly even different from doing projects that are blues-related like Betty LeVette um, or folk like Rihanna and Giddens? Right, so typically uh, folk and, and more... Um, laid back music is really more a kind of you have to really tune into what's happening and you're making um kind of smaller adjustments but you might they might add up you know just because you're making small adjustments and adding little layers um in mastering whether an analog or digital you know you're still trying to do something you know typically those mixes come in sounding really amazing already and so what i'm trying to do is use my gear in a way that's going to not take anything away from what's already there. Like whatever I'm doing, it has to add a little something um, more than what it was. But when it comes to rock music, it's like now I can try out, you know, different, my different compressors and limiters and see which one, you know, gives it more of a pump, gives it more energy, you know, allows the transients through so that we're not, you know, killing the snare and the attack of the kick drum. It becomes more of like a, it's a very different headspace to get in as far as listening goes uh, and the touch that you're using with the gear that you're using. I think I get to really work out my analog chain and my plugins more when I'm working on rock music um, mm. in ways that I absolutely don't when I'm working on folk and Americana stuff. Well, that's cool. Um, well, very cool. Well, hey, let's take a break for just a sec. Um, we'll come back in for the jam session. Rockstars, a reminder that we'll have links to what we're talking about here with Kim in the show notes, and you can get the complete show notes on the blog post, including a YouTube playlist where I've uh, added a bunch of her great sounding records. And we'll see you guys in just a minute for the jam session. It was 1971 in a New York City basement when Eventide revolutionized the audio world by introducing the world's first studio effects processor, the Instant Phaser, and the first digital effect, the H910 Harmonizer. Eventide soon followed with the Instant Flanger, Omnipressor, SP2016 Reverb, and H949 and H3000 Harmonizers, which have been favorites of A-list mixers like Michael Brower, Joe Ciccarelli, Mick Kozowski, and Dave and heard on countless hit records over the decades. Today, Eventide brings all that sound to your stage and studio with modern solutions like the H9000 Harmonizer, their complete line of guitar pedals, including the versatile H9 Max, and transformative plugins like Micropitch, Physion, Black Hole, and Mangled Reverb. Take your next mix in your studio to a whole new level. Go to eventide.com or click the link in the show notes below. Are you sick of bothering family and neighbors when you're just trying to rehearse or record your music? Do outside noises or computer fans get into your studio mics and ruin your recordings? You could book a pro studio to record every time, but that would add up quickly, and doing permanent construction to soundproof your studio can easily cost up to $100,000 or more. Trust me, I know. And you can't take that with you when you eventually move the studio. Don't you wish there was an easy solution right now? 
Quisproom IsoBooths offers a simple way to install a comfortable, quiet, ventilated IsoBooth in your studio with easy line of sight for recording vocals, guitar amps, or even drums in a variety of sizes. For 30 years, Whisperroom has been solving studio isolation needs worldwide with IsoBooths that are shippable, portable, and can be assembled in an afternoon. Now you can get pro vocal recordings right in your home studio, practice whenever you want, and start using real guitar amps again. Get 10% off the 4x4 or 4x6 booths when you mention Recording Studio Rockstars at whisperroom.com or click the link in the show notes below. Are you using a Mac in your recording studio? Are you tired of feeling like the studio setup you worked so hard to create is becoming obsolete too quickly? Wouldn't it feel great to have a trusted friend to help you keep your existing Mac and studio setup current and relevant so that you can focus on the thing you love most, which is making great music? Well, now you can rely on OWC, Otherworld Computing, which you can find at OWC.com, whose mission it is to help you get the most mileage out of your Mac. Whether you need to upgrade your RAM, install an SSD, add more connectivity, or simply find a great used Mac that's ready to rock, OWC will help take your studio far into the future with a vast library of DIY install videos, 24-7 friendly support, and free shipping in the U.S. on most items over $49. Why get frustrated and ditch your existing computer when you can take your studio far into the future with OWC? Learn more at OWC.com and find out how awesome your Mac can be at OWC. Hey, Rockstars, we're back now for the jam session. My guest today is Kim Rosen, joining us from New Jersey in her home mastering studio. Kim, are you ready to jam? I am. Um, tell us about your studio. What is your studio like? Uh, my studio is fantastic. It's, uh, it's about 14 by 25. It's uh, attached to the side of my house, so I can just walk from the studio right into my house. I can also walk right outside if I want some fresh air. Uh, but it was designed by Chris Polonis. Um, he designs speakers. He is a really great acoustician. He also designs rooms for Sony. Um, and it's fantastic, man. It's, I don't know, I have windows. I can look out on the lake across the street if I want. Oh, that's sweet. Um, it's, it's, it's pretty, it's just really, it, I feel like there's something about having the studio in my home where my family is. Uh, even though my kids are older, but just that it imparts something on me and in turn imparts something on my work. There's just something about it, a, a quality that's a little bit more loved, a little bit more real. I don't know. It just makes me happy to be able to work where I work. Yeah, I feel that way too. I'm a big, as you may know, I'm a big uh, uh, fan and defender of home studios. Yes, I do know this. <laughs> um, so uh, maybe describe how your studio as a mastering studio is maybe different from our, our studios or a mixing setup and that kind of thing. All right. So, you know, I have floor standing full range speakers. Uh, I do not use a sub with my setup. Um, I listen to ProX. Um, and really my desk is just set up in the front third of the room. I have a big space in the back with a couple of chairs, um, and bass traps built in the back walls. Um, and I sit at my desk and I've kind of modified the things around my desk a little bit since the room was completed. 
uh, kind hard, of feeling. Hard not to, right? <laughs> well, yeah. You know, wait, there's these stands in the back of my console that used to have things on them. And I just wanted it taken off. Like, I wanted more of a, a direct line from my speakers to my ears. <laughs> oh, cool. Um, so it's almost like you, you, you modified it by minimizing a little more and improving. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, but everything else has stayed the same as far as the sound treatments that are in the room. The front half has these really cool, or I should say groovy curtains um, that hang up that are that were specced to the build of the room. Um, and then in the back, we have a harder surface, some nice wood paneling. Um, but, you know, the ceiling itself, the room, unfortunately, the room was what it was. And so when, when he sent the, the dimensions of the room to Chris Polonis, he kind of asked some questions about, you know, could we move doors? And we're like, yeah, sorry, we probably should have reached out to you before we <laughs> finished the addition on our house. And yeah. so it, it was what it was, but we had a really big vaulted ceiling that had to be filled with insulation and um, some soffits built up, you know, up on the sides of the ceiling. And, you know, go back to my husband that he completely did the build out um, to spec by himself. So, wow. So I would, my, so gift, he's handy. <laughs> he's, he's handy. He's handy with music things. He's handy with building things. I would take our kids to visit my family in Massachusetts, leave him a, an empty house, and he would just have at it and build the room weekend by weekend um, and th- throughout the build. So our house was very small, and I was working in the living room when I first started. And then when we decided to build the addition, because I needed a, a, an actual room, um, we went from a 700-square-foot house to a 1,600 square foot house. So the room was built and I started working on it right away, even though there were no treatments or no nothing. So throughout the entire process, the room was changing. Um, but I had my trusty headphones, um, which in my opinion, as long as you have references that you're comfortable with and you can be confident in what you're hearing, um, I might've referenced what I was hearing in the room a little bit more in my car and in my headphones to get that complete picture that I needed. Yeah. What, what yeah. headphones did you like using? So I have these Sennheiser HD 580s, which is like the older version of the 650. Um, and they're just an amazing, flat, wonderful headphone. I, I I am very sad at the possibility of someday the drivers going because Sennheiser doesn't even make the same drivers anymore. I would have to put the 650 ones in there and they're just a little bit more bright and a little bit not what I like. Um, but yeah, I mean, I've had them since I worked for Alan. In fact, Alan got them for me um, right after that first mastering session as a gift. So, Are, are you familiar with Sonarworks and their reference software that, that um, seeks to compensate different headphone EQ curves and flatten them out? Have you, are you familiar have, with that and have you found that interesting at all? I have not, but you saying that, that is interesting. Okay, all right. Well, cool. They were they were, um they are pretty great. I've I've been using their software on my uh NS tens while I'm mixing and I find it really helpful, particularly because it just gives me insights into low end and stuff. But um I would be very curious to hear your your take on it um, when you do get a chance to hear all that stuff. Cool. But obviously uh the uh the HD five eighties as you know, as stock we're working well for you. I mix on um, headphones when I'm down at the Bonnaroo Hay Bale Studio um, every every summer, and I find it is something you just get used to. You know, you just you sort of train yourself. Um, and then, of course, um, 
you know, Andrew Sheps was on the podcast talking about mixing and I think it was like the Sony uh, 7506 headphones and just learning how they sound. And then you just know what a record sounds like. Yep. Yep. I mean, absolutely. I mean, it really anything, speakers, headphones. I mean, if you really take the time to learn something, it it's, you should be able to make up for, well, you should be, that's the keyword, be able to make up for whatever you know you're missing or just know them well enough that, you know, the head, these, the HD 580s, they're, they're not particularly bassy. They don't have a lot of low end. In fact, they have a little less. Um, and, but because I've listened to them for so long, I just know what that means. I know what I'm hearing when I listen to them. What's the difference between knowing your speakers and headphones because you work in them all the time versus knowing them because you listen to other reference records in them? Um... Explain a little bit more because I'm not quite. Well, I mean, I guess I'm just, that was a fancy way of saying the car is where I listen to music when I'm just enjoying other people's music all the time. And that, you know, referencing my stuff in the car, somehow I immediately hear things and get it. Um, But the studio, I don't as, you know, I don't often sit and just listen to other people's records on, on my studio monitors. I tend to be working on them all the time. And I wonder if you have thoughts on that balance and, you know, how, how the rock stars can be comfortable knowing what a great record sounds like on the the tools that they're actually working on. Yeah. So I just have, uh, I, I kind of laugh at myself that I'm able to do this. There's plenty of music that I, with my working brain, my mastering brain, I'm not really crazy about how it sounds sonically, but because I love the song or the performance or the artist, I'll just listen to it over and over again. Yeah. Um, I'm not always driven by that work brain. Um, however, there are limits to that. And sometimes things can just sound so not great that I just, I I can't, and it, it just makes me not feel good, but I really don't have a problem with that at all. I mean, if I want to listen for work, I'll take something out to my car. I'll listen to it, you know, critically and hear what I want to hear. And then I'll go back into my studio for work. Um, I want to go in my car and just listen to music for enjoyment. I'll, I'll do that too. I don't really have any hang up on either or. And I, and I guess maybe that's not typical and maybe it's harder for some people to do. Uh, I know my husband particularly, he can't, he's just like, no, I don't, I don't, I don't like this. I don't want to listen to it. I'm like, okay, well, <laughs> well, we're listening to it. Nice. Um, all right, let's see. Um, let's, let's talk about some of the specific records that you've sent us to check out. Um, so one of them was Foy Vance. You, you love are my only and and I noticed um, just a, an observation. It's got a tambourine in it, sort of a bright tambourine in the mix that sounds great. And I wondered, it, it just prompted me to ask the question, you know, how does some of us go wrong when mixing bright instruments and how do you handle bright sounds in mastering? So it depends. It depends on when I listen to something, what is what is the intent of this recording? Does Does this bright tambourine fit into this recording? You know, in my opinion, again, you know, this I'm using my own judgment here. Um, if it doesn't fit in, I feel like it doesn't really fit well with what I'm hearing the intention of this recording is, then I, I typically don't reach for a de-esser. I will reach for EQ uh, before I go for a de-esser to deal with a tambourine. Mm-hmm. Um, but something that's a little bit more that just needs an edge off, you know, I'll just you know, switch a selection on my Fern VT7 from, uh, which is really a high pass filter, but it affects the top end in a way that it's really subtle 
and soft and um, barely noticeable, but sometimes it's just enough. So especially in this Foy Vance, there wasn't any top end adjustment that I did at all. I mean, everything to me just fit with the vibe and the intention of the recording itself. Um, you know, it's kind of like a, a, a period based recording. It's just everything made sense. It wasn't right, anything right. that I felt needed to be, you know, dealt with. So there wasn't any anywhere that I reached to. But I would say I always reach for, um, you know, an EQ to deal with a tambourine before anything else. Because if I'm using compression, it's going to affect something else that I don't really want compressed. So even when we're talking about a DSer, I just, it gets too much for me. I'm looking for broader strokes to achieve what I want. So an EQ in that example might be like a narrow filter that where you're sort of like able to scoop out a tiny bit or is that the wrong way to look at it no i might do a high shelf um so like 10k and up and i might just pull down less than half a db and that might be enough right um another interesting thing that happens when you have um issues you're trying to deal with in the top end sometimes if you address the low end you know is it is it sparse down there um, can I add some sub low end that's not going to overpower the low end that's there, but that might even really balance out what's happening in the top end. Um, I try to think of going places that aren't the instrument that I'm trying to deal with first. So instead of going right to EQ, um, a tambourine and deal with that, like what else can I do that might pull back on that or affect that before I have to get to specifically, um, EQing it. What are some of the things that most of us um, run the risk of getting wrong as far as low end in a mix? <laughs> that's, a, that's a common question for you, right? Well, it's really truly one of the um, one of the biggest hurdles that I deal with on a daily basis is low end, and and almost in every case, it's really just the mix engineer not putting too much for the sake of putting too much. It's just they're not hearing, they're not listening in an accurate environment. Um, and, and if you know you're not listening in an accurate environment, you should be using other things like headphones and a car to, to listen to and reference what you're doing so you can try and fit a picture together where you're understanding what it is. Um, because That's good advice. Yeah, it, it gets, you know, you, you should be able to. I mean, all those things that, at your ears and, instead of your fingertips, um, you should be able to use those pieces to fit together like, well, it sounds okay in my studio, but... And it sounds okay in the headphones, but I bring it out to my car and the low end's just crazy. It's out of control. Um, another useful tool when you're dealing with low end and mixing is try to have some kind of visual, um, you know, a, a visual where you can see um, frequencies going on in your mix. And maybe you can see what's happening with the low end if you can't even hear it. And that's helpful as well. Um, that can I be s- tricky sometimes because when I look at an RTA, I see, you know, things going down below 40 hertz or something like that. And I'm like, yeah, but what do I make of those, you know? Right. Well, sometimes, I mean, you know, those aren't always the biggest culprits when it comes to too much low end. It's typically more on the 80 hertz, 90, 100, where it gets to be too much. But my concern is I don't want to have to EQ too much. Like, yes, part of kind of sculpting and tightening up low end involves EQ in, in my opinion, but I prefer it for a mix to come in with a good sounding EQ that I can just run through my compressors and, and my analog chain. And that will just tighten it, tighten it up without me having to cut in and do too much sculpting to it. 
um, you know, I want the line to sound natural. I want it to sound the way that you wanted it to sound in the mix or the way that the musician was playing it. Um, yeah, you know. well, the low end sounds great on the records you sent too. And I, and I don't know how to um, technically describe it, but the sense is like there's just this deep power that comes out of uh, many of the recordings where it's like something happens and you just hear, you almost feel this like low rush behind it. You know? Yeah, so Foy's albums, it's, it's like two companion albums that are coming out. And this first one that's being released is from... Um, Muscle Shoals, and it was recorded at Fame Studios by Ben Tanner. Right on. Uh, and so that, I mean, Boy posted a lot about on social media about how how it felt to be recording in that studio, and you can you can tell you can tell in these recordings that um, it was just like a spiritual thing for them to be there recording, um, and it comes through in the music, and that's just it's magic, man. It's 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 awesome. And the other album um, was recorded with Matt Ross Spang at Sam Phillips. And that one is titled "To Memphis." So, from Muscle Shoals to Memphis. Um, and was that at was that at Sam Phillips recording at, yes. at uh, Matt Studio? Yes. So, not yeah. not too shabby. A couple of locations to yeah. go make your yeah. records. Have you been to both? I have not. I have not been to either. I uh, I would like to get out and travel more. I spend most of my time traveling to uh, like audio engineering events, and and less of it spent going to see friends at studios, which I would so, like to do. So what we what you're saying is we need more audio events in uh, Muscle Shoals and in Memphis. Absolutely. All right, let's make it happen. Um, they're both very very cool studios, and and uh, I got to see Fame recently, and it just really inspired me. I bought bought the T-shirt. Yeah, you gotta. <laughs> um, okay, cool. So now uh, another record uh, and funny funny name uh, uh, mentioning what we just said about Memphis. But uh, Sam Phillips' World on Sticks. Um, uh-huh. When I saw Sam Phillips as a credit at first, I was like, I was like, was there some was there some Sam Phillips record that was made that I didn't know about? Yeah. So not the Sam Phillips from Memphis, but tell us um, that that record has a super a great like super compressed pumping drums effect and vocals that are right up in your face. And I wondered if you you know you kind of talked about this already. But how much of that sound comes from the mastering versus the mixing? Mixing, excuse me. I mean, stuff like that, like really obvious sounds that you hear, is really coming from the mix. And what I'm looking to do is stay out of the way. But again, impart something that just gives it a little extra five percent, um, uh, a little bit of you know someone on the outside that hasn't been working on the recording and the mixing to kind of let's 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 bring it up like this. Let's bring it together like this. And I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm using these kind of ambiguous ways to describe it because it's just different. Every time I hear a mix and I hear like this, this needs to be done. I need to make it louder. I don't want to make it as loud as the reference file they sent. I think that's too loud. Um, I'm very lucky that many, many of my clients, they'll send me their reference mixes. So they'll be limited to some extent so that they're loud. Um, there's mm-hmm. many times when I send back my masters that are a, a little bit quieter than that. And I typically don't get any pressure to make it louder. So I'm very grateful to my clients for that. But the Sam Phillips Phillips project, it just sounds amazing. Her songwriting and her just her performance, her delivery of the songs, it's just really great. Um, yeah, it's really a rockin' kind of folky album. Nice. And it, it was fun to work on. Um, why don't we talk for a moment about 
what we should be delivering to you when we mix. Um, I've recently learned to start, well, learned is, I guess, the right word. I mean, everything for me is an experiment. It's just something I'm trying to improve on what was yesterday, and, and tomorrow I'll probably try and improve on this. But the um, but I'm I'm printing to two buses at once. So one is sort of like the the hotter, you know, some people in Nashville will call it the heater mix, mm-hmm. and then one sort of without all the extra gain on it. Um, what do you want to say to the rock stars about appropriate stuff to deliver so that you can really do your best work? Yeah. So if you have sent um, like reference mixes, those louder mixes to your client, I absolutely 100% need to hear them. I definitely would love to have them. Um, and then I don't, I don't need you to, if you're using something on your mix bus to just kind of glue your mix together and you're not necessarily doing it to make everything louder, I, I definitely want to hear what the client has been hearing. Um, and then beyond that, I don't, I don't necessarily need you to take off anything from your mix bus, um, unless you're really pushing a limiter too much aside from that reference mix. Um, if you're happy with what you have on your mix bus, then that's what I want to master. If I have an issue once I get the mix, then I'll let you know. Um, the other thing is if you're sending me like alternate mixes, acapellas, instrumentals, vocal up, vocal down, make sure you label the main mix, the mix you want me to use or to go to first as such. So I don't have to figure out which one is the right one to be using. Right. So um, people people will send you a bunch of different versions of mixes? Yeah, sometimes I do. Um, a lot of times, labels, they want it all. They, they want the instrumentals. They want um, just the acapellas for licensing purposes or something. Um, however, there's plenty of music that I do do that there's no way to get instrumentals because it's all recorded live and there's too much bleed to get any kind of alternate mix. But for things like Vocal Up, vocal down when you're just not sure um, in mixing how it's going to react in mastering and you just want to have those options available, just make sure you have it labeled so I know which mix you want me to start with. Is it important for there to be a, an, a per, certain amount of headroom above the mix um, to full scale for, for you to you know be able to make great work of it? Nope, I don't. I try not to get in the way of what you're doing. I really, really want a mix engineer to focus on um, what they're doing and and how to make it sound its best. I mean, as long as I have you know a little bit of room to make it louder. If your mix is the same level as your hot mix that you're sending to your clients, then yeah, you should probably give me a little bit of room. But um, no, I I try not to give any indication of what you should be doing. I want you to work. Um, in whatever way you need to to make your mix sound great without thinking about something else. Now, let's say um, our mix is pretty loud, and uh, if we if we take stuff off, it seems to change it for us. Is it helpful to actually just turn down the master fader and print it with the master fader turned down, and then send it to you? No, because if you're if you're trying to alleviate something on your mix bus where things are sounding too compressed and you're just pulling down the fader, that's not dealing with the issue. Um, and again, if, if I get your mix, you left all your mix bus processing, processing on because you think it sounds great and I get it and I think it sounds great, but there's like a section where I'm hearing a little bit of crunchiness. Like I may ask you to just back off the compression a bit or limiting, whatever you have going on. Um, but I definitely wouldn't 
need really anything more than that. Right, right. Okay. All right. Well, here's another question about a record you did. Um, the Milk Carton Kids, Morning in America, makes a great use of hard panning with strings off to one side, vibes to the other. And it just made me think to ask the question of whether or not left-right balance is something that can actually be adjusted in mastering if we don't quite get it right at mixing, or if that's something you really have to nail at mixing before you can address it in mastering. Well, I'm sure to, it gets just, I think it gets too complicated in mastering. When you're talking about left-right balance, if you're wanting to isolate instruments, vocals within the stereo field, I can't really do that. I mean, if it's just your left and right that aren't even, you need them even, yeah, I can adjust that. But beyond that, you know, yeah, you want it set where you need it in mixing. Um, and I'm always happy to go through with a client and have them send me something and me give feedback and they can work on tweaking the mix and then send me another version, see if it's closer to where um, they want it, I want it. Um, you know, this is this is a process. This is not my job to like get your music, master it, send it back to you. Here you go. I'm done. You know, this is a process that I want to be involved in that that every client, producer, mix engineer, artist should be involved in. Um, that's how it should be. And, that, and that's always how I find the, the best results happen. So you mean process, meaning um, like in it to win it, keep working on it until it's right kind of thing? Well, no, process more like let me be involved. I'm not here to tell you what you should be doing. I'm here to help you facilitate a final product that you are happy with. You know, right. I'm not here to tell you how it should be. I'm here to help you get where you want to be. Yeah. Well, it's always good to be reminded that we're in a service industry, all of us. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I mean, you know, I, I like to think even the artist is in a service industry because they're serving the, the fans. Well, and it's also, depending on who you're working with, it's also education. You know, so it's, sometimes it's my job to, to let clients know about, you know, metadata and, and what they need and what they don't and, um, you know, and what they, they, you know, you sent me some mixes in mono or I kind of, you know, you sent me, you know, one side of a multiple mono file, a stereo, you know, all your mixes are at 48K and one is at 1644, yeah. you know, and helping them through how to, you know, deal with that or, or listening issues. They're listening to the masters and something sounds weird, helping them through, you know, iTunes preference settings. So it, it also can become a kind of an educational relationship that we have with clients who are just kind of, you know, learning and, and we yeah. owe it to every client to help them, you know, understand this process as best we can. Um, have you found any consistency in file formats that um, seem to be usually sounding great when they come from clients? I mean, do you want to suggest to us that we maybe consider recording in a certain file format? Uh, no. I'd, the only thing I would say is that I don't really need 32-bit files. Some people send them to me, and it's fine when they do. It's not a problem. But I don't need um, to work in 32-bits because I'm doing so little digital processing. And so that's really not going to benefit me. Um, but I mean, that's aside from that, no, any sample rate is fine. Uh, I prefer not to work on MP3s. <laughs> okay. Now, now, um, with that in mind, let me see if I can clarify how we should approach it. Because, um, you know, Joe Ciccarelli, for example, was on the show and I asked him just point blank. I was like, dude, what, sh what should we record at? And 
He suggested 3296 was a good choice, and I've actually found that to sound really good on my system as well. Um, if we're recording that way, how do we not deliver you a 32-bit file? Okay, so when you're bouncing your mix, um, you have to choose a, a bit depth. Um, you can keep your sample rate where it is, um, but as far as bit depth goes, you can... I guess that's a good question and something that I would need to help determine. I don't know if truncating to 24-bit or dithering to 24-bit is desirable at that stage. I so. think when I'm bouncing, I get the option to bounce it as 24-bit, and I'm not sure if it asked me about dithering or not, but you're saying there might still be a, a smarter way to do it. Um, yeah, all right. Well, good to know. Maybe maybe the jury's still out. I mean, 32-bit is is great, and but I, if, as far as... I understand 32-bit is great when it comes to digital and and the resolution that you're getting within a mix when you're using plugins and you're doing a lot of processing in, in the digital realm. Right, um, right. But because when it gets to me, and which is why I said it's not it's not awful for me to get 32-bit files, I will convert them to my target format here. I won't sample rate convert them, but I'll get the bit depth where they need to be. Um, so that's really my only, that's okay, just cool. what I don't need. Groovy. Um, we were talking about um, how loud you master, and sometimes you know you send it back quieter, and it sounds great. Um, so, how would you answer the question of how loud is loud enough, and how is how important is understanding streaming levels too when mixing and mastering? Aha! Uh -huh. So, <clears throat> streaming levels. I wish we all had a little bit more transparent information from. Uh, you know, Spotify and the like, so that we we knew what was happening to our audio. And I think that that's the biggest hurdle. I think we 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 take whatever information is out there as engineers, and we try to make sense of it. But because companies like Spotify may change their codec or their compression rate or whatever they're doing, without us knowing it, um, how can we're we're shooting at a moving target? So my goal is still mastering for CD and mastering so that I'm avoiding as much as I can intersample peaking, which will help with kind of whatever compression rate or codec is happening in the streaming world. Um, right. but, but beyond that, it's really difficult to like hear exact, because if Spotify gave us the tools, that would be great to audition and hear what's going to happen when this audio goes to Spotify. I mean, Apple gives us the tools, um, even though it's MFIT, but you can, you can get, the free tools from Apple and you can drag and drop your high res file into their codec and you can hear their converted M4A file and how it's going to sound. Um, nice. Now, does it sound different? Does it sound different when it's being streamed? Maybe. Does it sound closer um, than not? Yeah. Um, I just, yeah, I wish that we had more ways to audition it, but I think that because things are changing so rapidly with technology that it's that it's just kind of difficult to um, master and make things specifically for all these different streaming formats. So I try to just stick with CD and just that basic streaming, avoiding intersample peaking, which is similar to the MFIT mastered for iTunes format, which right. is basic. It's basically just dropping the ceiling of the track so that you're eliminating altogether or reducing the those intersample peaks. Um, I'm not sure if this is really the same topic or different, but um, as far as the 
uh, lev- the gain compensation that happens between different streaming services. Um, uh, you may be familiar with Ian Shepard and his plugin um, Loudness Penalty, which is new, but it will mimic those different gain changes and allow us to see whether a site's going to turn it up or turn it down and um, and listen at that compensated gain so that we can get a sense of whether or not it's sounding right to us or not. Um, but it's really, it really is like it's, it feels a bit scratch your head when when you try right. and think about all this stuff, right. especially on the mixing end. Well, and and that's the hard part. It's just you know if 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 it it wasn't for things having to be streamed and us wanting to stream you know larger files, we wouldn't have so much compression on it. And you know, do the people that are working on these compression rates and codecs are, are they audio people or are they just computer ones and right. zeros people that right. are here? I can get it to do this thing, but is it going to sound good? You know, we don't know. And and then would this all be a problem if we just stopped making things so loud? I don't know. Possibly not. That may not even be the problem. But, um, you know, there has to be some kind of collective way to get information about what is happening so that we can stop guessing and stop having so many questions and, and having more answers. Uh, you know, we all work so hard on our audio for it to sound a certain way and for us to send it off to digital distribution, not really knowing what's going to happen beyond that. That's that's really kind of weird. But we have no choice but to kind of accept that. It's just, it's just bizarre. Yeah. Well, one of the things I wonder about, too, is whether some of these challenging questions about all this stuff are just going to disappear as soon as, you know, bandwidth increases everywhere and all of a sudden we're just streaming larger files, you know. Right. Maybe maybe none of this will matter. Maybe it'll everything will be CD no matter where you listen to it. Well, maybe yes, maybe no. I mean, radios always used compression and 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 ways of playing their music. I mean, I'm sure there will never fully be away from it. There will always be something there um, that we'll have to kind of take into account. But right. yeah, I, I do look forward to a day when um, there's less of a concern over things like this and more over just focusing back to what we're doing, our work, engineering. And we get to this final stage and everybody's just kind of like, we, we think it's this, we think it's that. Here, you can audition it this way, you can audition it that way. No, I just want to know. Right, and, exactly. And, and, and we don't have that yet, so it's We look forward to a day when everything rocks. Yes. <laughs> so um, speaking of rocking, um, how can we make loud-in-your-face records um, that still sound smooth and not harsh. It's one of the things I noticed about your work is, um, you know, a band like Roswell Kid, for example, it's really slamming in a good way, but it's just like it's nice and smooth, you know? Yeah, so I, especially in the pursuit of um, loudness, I tend to focus more on gain staging than compression and limiting. So while, yes, I'm using, uh, you know, final peak limiting to kind of help get me there. It's really just how I'm gain staging it through my analog chain and then what I'm using after that to get things loud. Am I using, um, you know, limiters? Am I using compressor plugins? Uh, am I using output gain on other plugins to, to help lift the volume? You know, it's completely dependent on the music itself. Um, and if it's not super compressed to begin with, yeah, I can have it sound big and loud and open as opposed to really trying to, work with something that's already compressed and and bring out that detail in mastering, which is a completely different approach and, and job, really. 
uh, if something's mixed really, really well and is very open and it has space, um, then yeah, I can use my gain staging and get it through my analog chain and converters and out to some really great plugins that can help me kind of get it loud without kind of, I don't know, constricting it too much. So that might be good advice at the mix stage too, as far as how we're attempting to do the same thing is, is um, you know, gain staging it through little bits of plugins to try and get it more in your face rather than just taking one compressor and trying to sl- slam it. Correct. Unless we're going for like a real character sound. Effect, yeah. Yeah, like um, what was that on, on Sam Phillips? That was a really clearly compressed drum thing, I think. Yes, I think I know the song you're talking about. But it's, you know, yeah, it's, it's cool. It, it doesn't have to be a ton of plugins, and that's probably one of the earliest things I ever learned. You know, you don't need to use one plugin to do a thing. You use, you know, a, a few things, analog, digital, and it adds up to something that's really just, it's just way more pleasing, and you're getting the same result. Is mastering a process of constantly A-Bing things? Yes. I, for me, it is. For me, it is, because I always want to hear where I came from and where I'm at. Um, and I tend to A-B pretty quickly. Uh, and and after many, many years of, of work, um, you know, I'll listen to the song you know, from beginning to end, and then I'll start going around to areas of the song that I need to deal with and making changes on the intro. And then I go to the, you know, where the chorus comes in, making sure that the settings are, are helping, you know, between chorus and verse, determining if I need to make changes in the mastering between chorus and verse. Stuff like that. So there are changes that can happen mid-song in a mastering process. Correct. Sometimes. Um, Not all the times. uh, But it's definitely something that is part of, you know, my tools. It's what I do. Um, Also, maybe even volume volume automation on the mix before it gets sent out to the chain. If something comes in really compressed and I want that punch from from, um, first to chorus, then I might volume automate it up or down eight, you know, 0.8 dB to kind of help with that impact without changing things too drastically, you know, just enough to help it lift and come through with that energy that you want in a rock track. Yeah. Um, Okay, cool. Um, Can mastering affect how the vocal is heard in in the final version? Absolutely. Um, It can bring out the vocal. It can totally inundate the vocal. Um, And that's one of the things that is a lot of fun for me. Like, so I, I talk a lot about how I try to use pieces of gear, maybe not EQ or compression per se, but like how does just running it through this piece of gear affect the vocal? Um, you know, on the Whitestone unit, the, the transformer options have this really, really awesome way of, of helping, you know, lift the vocal up out of the center if it needs to. Um, sometimes if a vocal's out too much, just, you know, running it through, the fern compressor can help it sit a little bit more. Um, so yeah, so real subtle changes that help with the impact of, of a song and mastering. Yeah, that we can do that. Do you know Doug Fern personally? Uh, I've met him a number of times. He's just an awesome guy. And um, yeah, I make sure I stop by and see him and talk up his gear any chance I get. Cause I think he really, um, he loves, you know, building gear, but he also loves music and you can really tell that in the things that he creates and builds that he, you know, he loves recording music just as much as building the gear. So super nice guy. Yeah. I've met him and um, shot a video with him before. I think it was AES. 
He's got an awesome beard too. So he does, and I had <laughs> my beard sort of like disappearing pretty quickly, and I just got all my long hair chopped off too. So yeah, I saw that video. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> It was fun. It was overdue. You know, uh, going from short hair to long hair was trying something new. Going from long hair to short hair, trying something new. Yeah, yeah. Want to record killer drums in your home studio? Then check out Rockstars of Drums to learn how to record, edit, and mix pro-sounding drums with a professional Nashville session drummer in a Grammy-winning studio. Or if you're ready to start mastering your own records at home, then check out Rockstars of Mastering, where I walk you through exactly how I mastered my own records, Skadoosh, using nothing but plugins in PreSona Studio One. And if mixing is your focus, then check out my free course, Mix Master Bundle, where I show you how to mix using stock and free plugins and Pro Tools. And the best part is these techniques would work for you in whichever DAW you're using right now. Plus, you get a look at how I recorded everything in my studio and multi-track downloads for you to practice mixing and even include in your mixing portfolio if you want. Are you ready to make your best record ever? Then go to Mix Master Bundle to get started for free now or look for the clickable link in the show notes of this episode. Um, all right, cool. So let's jump to um, some of the outro questions here and just kind of go through these quickly. Um, when you started out in recording, what do you feel like was holding you back? Uh, so really it was learning what I could do with the gear. Um, and when I know how to know, I've taken something as far as I can. So, uh, you know, in those early days, I could just you could just keep working forever. And I, I'm pretty sure that plenty of mix engineers, you know, feel the same way. You could just keep working on a mix over and over, make it better, make it worse. Knowing when I've done enough, I've made the sun, you know, the best that I can uh, for efficiency's sake, uh, you know, that was that was a really important kind of step yeah. to achieve. Maybe one of the best ways to um, finish working on a mix is to have another one that you got to start right away. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Um, again, my Bonnaroo hay bale studio is great for that. It's like, you just, you, you got to do the next song already. Right. So you got to move on. No turning back. Um, how about some of the best advice you remember receiving? Um, was there anything you remember learning, you know, an aha moment originally from working with Alan Douches or anything like that? Well, one of the things that he told me early on was just because the client approves it doesn't mean it's right. Uh, and that's more in terms of like, as a mastering engineer, kind of have a really important job to like not let anything slip through the cracks. So sometimes in a mix, you might miss uh, like an edit click or a pop or, a, or a, there might be like an, an errant like rumble here or there. You really have to um, pay attention yeah. and focus to the entire song, not just to the sonics and what you're changing and mastering, but just to the detail of it to not let those little things slip through. So a client might approve it and think it's fine, but if you let a couple pops and clicks slide through, then that's going to be in the final master. It's kind of our job to, you know, help take care of that stuff. Point it out to them. Hey, I heard this stuff. I'm going to get rid of it for you. Is that cool? Oh yeah, I never heard it. There you go. So I've f- had the same experience actually with low end where, where I've had a client say low bass sounded great. Low end sounded fine. And then I, you know, listen to it later and I'm just like, Oh, right. no, it's really bugging me. Right. I, I find that we train our ears to pick up on things and it's an interesting balance between whether the thing we're picking up on is something we really need to keep working on or whether maybe the client is right and it's time to move on. Right. And so that's kind of the wisdom that comes with, you know, having been in the industry and worked for a little bit longer. But, you know, but hearing that, like just because the 
you know, you're not, you're not overturning, you know, um, like just putting it all on the client to like, it's all their fault. If something goes wrong, no, like we're taking the responsibility. We're taking the responsibility as engineers to really do our due diligence to make sure that this is, this is a professional sounding recording. Like just because a client missed hearing something doesn't mean that it's okay. And we should, you know, be there to help them fix it, to sound it as best it it can in all cases, you know, maybe the, the answer to that too is like, uh, just, we should all make it so that we want to listen to it. Exactly. And something, if man, if your name's going on it, yeah, you want it to, to not have any errors or mistakes. Absolutely. Everybody should be striving for that. How about sharing a recording tip, hack, or secret sauce, something the rock stars could use on their next session? Ah, less is always more. Um, and low-end response in your studio is everything. <laughs> um, so really, it's just, you know, I mean, I I have a room that sounds great. I have a room that's, you know... I love listening to stuff in here, but there's so many times when I talk to people about their mixing environment and trying to get their low end just just sitting right. Their life becomes so much easier when you're hearing um, accurate low end. I mean, all the issues that you struggle for that might take you longer to mix through um, can be alleviated by just, and if you don't know how to like test out your room and, and see what you need to do to help it, like ask somebody, you know, to help you out and figure out where you can place some, um, you know, sound treatment things to just help you out a little bit. And the results could be pretty impactful. Mm-hmm. And, and, and that's, and that's a great thing. And, and, and save you time, which is also a great thing. Cause then you can work more or you can go, you know, have a beer or go for a walk. <laughs> um, does less is more um, tend to apply to the low end itself as well? So less is more was kind of a, it, it's kind of tied in, but it's kind of separate. Like, and that goes back to the me inevitably going back to that first version. Like you think that because you have all this gear, you must use it all, or you have all these knobs, you must turn them all. Um, or and because it, you have a mix template, you should keep <laughs> yes. all those things on. <laughs> and so that's one of the things that really just came with time and mastering. It's like knowing what works, trying new things, you know, it's this balance. You want to be efficient in what you're doing, but you also don't want to like kind of just rest and not try new things because, I mean, maybe it's the greatest thing ever. Maybe it sounds fantastic. So I always try to find this balance of not doing too much because I know that it's it's wasting time and I know it sounds good. So it's being confident in what I know um, and then building from that. I mean, it's just, it's time and time again, I see it. <laughs> you know, go through the version two, version three. I actually had a client where he had, I mastered the album, the full album. He wanted to change and he asked the mix engineer to completely remix the album. I said, well, hold on. I, you know, I can make a change to the mastering. It might be what you want. And he, so he sent me all these new mixes. I mastered it again and he just started chasing the sound and I went through two full master versions with some changes, and we ended up back at that first version. <laughs> I mean, and I, I, and I was shocked. But, but at the end of the project, he felt bad and was like, listen, if you hadn't tried, I mean, and this is, it might sound crazy, but was, if you hadn't tried and gone through these steps and gone through these revisions trying to get to where you wanted only to be like, no, 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 it was right back there, you might have always wondered, it could have been better. It could have been this, or I should have said something. Now, you know, no, I tried the things I wanted to, I was trying to get this to happen. It couldn't sound like the way I was thinking it should. The, the first version was, was the one all along. 
Yeah. So it, it was a very interesting and um, stressful situation for me. It was a lot of work, but to be able to say that to the client and have them learn that lesson was just great. Um, and you know, validating. <laughs> yeah. Well, you, it's, it's similar to what you described about your own process of learning how to master. It's just that once you know how to master, if you're working with a client who's also going through that learning process, yeah, that can be a lot. Maybe, maybe the only advice is, um, uh, you had to go through the process. Maybe just next time, just call me when you get to the right answer. <laughs> we'll start there. There you go. Right. Um, okay, cool. So uh, um, how about uh, either a favorite hardware tool or something you're just excited about now, something physical you really like to have on sessions? Uh, my Whitestone P331 amp. Um, there it is. There it is. It's, it's, the, it's, it's a lot of fun to use. I'm pretty particular about gear. I don't like gear with like a million knobs and settings and and switches and this, there's just enough. You can sit down and, and work your way around this unit in 15, 20 minutes and then start like just using different combinations, different settings. It's also a fully stepped unit. So it's, it's recallable, very easy to use. Um, it's a lot of fun. You can, you can hear sounds, it can do things and you can just turn it off. You can add a little, you can add more. It's, it's really, it's really a lot of fun to use. And then all all different kinds of music as well, I find. Um, yeah. So is it something that we can consider um, only if we're mastering or can we consider it for the recording and mixing process as well? No. So we have my friend Ryan Freeland in uh, California. He has a Whitestone unit and we're, we're looking to kind of widen the scope of pe people who are using it on Mixbus um, because it's, it's really great. I mean, if you are using an analog chain and even if you aren't, if you're in the box... This is something that a lot of people who are doing, you know, in-the-box mixing, they're just looking for something else, you know, that will give their mix an edge. So not literally, but just like something different, something more that you're not getting from a plug-in. So get it, grab a pair of great converters, convert out, go out to the Whitestone and come back. And, and instantly you have these options of adding something analog with just one unit. It's really versatile. I think the word is better. Uh, yes. <laughs> we just want it to be a little bit better. A little bit better. Um, how about a favorite software tool or something you're excited about? Um, well, I guess my favorite plugin that I like using, I really like the FabFilter plugins. And I know they came out with a new version of their EQ, which they call the Q3, but I'm still stuck on their um, their second version, the Q2, I guess it is. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's, it's just, it's a really great, EQ. I love the MS setting, even though I don't EQ in MS. Um, I put, I set it, set it to MS, which is really kind of strange and weird. But for some reason, I just think it sounds better. Um, which might be crazy or might be snake oil, but sticking with it. But that's a plugin that I use a lot. Um, sometimes that EQ on the way out to my analog chain. That's where I use it mostly. Um, I, I enjoy using that plugin a lot too. And I, I love some of the features like being able to see the real time frequencies underneath yes, it, yes. um, being able to hover over it. And when I see a peak somewhere, just hover and then grab a dot and pull it back if I want to. Right. Um, what about, uh, there are different EQ settings in there. I think there's like, um, low latency and phase linear and stuff. Any comments on those different choices to help the rock stars understand how to Let's interpret a plugin see. like that? So I'm on zero latency. Um, and that's just kind of where I set it. I think that's the default, but mm -hmm. that's where I use it at all times. I'm never, I don't know if there, I don't even know if there's any presets there, um, within the plugin cause I'm always using my own. Um, and on occasion, 
Um, even though, like I said, I put it, I set it up in MS mode, but I don't necessarily use it in MS mode. Um, sometimes I will, if I feel like I need the vocal to come back in or, or poke out a little bit, I will go ahead and EQ the vocal, um, you know, just in the mid setting. But that's about cool, it. I mean, I, cool. I like to use plugins the way that they're intended. And that's kind of why with their new version of this EQ, you know, I just will need time to work through it because I think there's a lot more options. I think that's why a lot of people love it because it's a little bit more versatile. There might even be a dynamic setting on it um, that I'm just not, you know, I like working efficiently and working, you know, in the best way that I can. And uh, until I can spend some time, uh, right, right. Getting, 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 getting familiar with these new settings. I'm just, I'll just stick with what I've got for now. Good advice though, in general for everybody, it's part of that less is more advice. Um, yeah. Just because you have more options and there's more new stuff. Um, remember that what you bring to it is more valuable than the tool itself, and you yes. need to give yourself time to get to know that tool, right? Absolutely, yeah. Um, how about a, a resource or a tip for the business side of doing this? If the Rockstars want to do this for more than just a hobby, um, what advice would you give them? Yeah, so uh, in addition to being the mastering engineer here, I also do all of the booking and billing. I don't have a manager. I don't have anybody else here. Uh, we should probably change that soon because I am pretty busy. But I, I use, um, I moved from QuickBooks years ago because it was too much for me. I, I moved to this program called FreshBooks, which is online. Yeah, I know and, that one. And it's a really great, um, it's really great invoicing software. It allows the invoice to be sent from them instead of from me. I can remind clients who haven't paid through the the software program. So it's again, it's not me. It's it's the software sending. Hey, you know, here's your invoice. It's you know, it's been. 30 days or seven days, however long, but it also can tie into your bank account so it can show you expenses. And, um, it's just very useful for people who are running a small business. Um, and it's, it's very affordable too. So, yeah, it's funny. Cause I actually started with fresh books and moved over to QuickBooks. So <laughs> we're, we're keeping them both going. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, th- what you said about the invoicing is so great because, um, Rockstars, if you haven't sent a bunch of invoices yet, what you discover is when you're when you're manually sending it and manually reminding people, mm-hmm. it just makes you stress over it more and worry about like how do I word this politely and all this yes, stuff. Absolutely. And when you just have a button to just hit resend, it's it's so pleasant. Right. And you can you can add a comment into the into the invoice that you're sending them that's just, you know, saying, Oh, you know, this is however many days past due, you know, in order for me to proceed with the work. You know, you need to make payment, stuff like that. But yeah, it takes away because I listen, I like getting along with my clients. I like being, you know, cool. Sometimes I'll, I'll work on a re- revised mix without billing people. You know, I can make that choice. I'm, I'm my own boss. But to have the, to have to do that all the time and to feel like you're put in the bad guy position, um, you can take that element out of it by having a really great software program that can help with invoicing. Yeah, great tip. All right, now how about something for the organizational side of things? How do you keep your shit together? <laughs> Sometimes I don't. Um, <laughs> no, I have, especially for projects, I have um, a kind of endlessly changing text document that I color code with the name of every project that I have um, in progress, wrapping up, coming in, and it's all color coded based on um, what step it's at, what I'm waiting for, so I can just look at the the list and see what needs my attention immediately. Obviously, th- that would be things in red. <laughs> um, right. And and so on. So it, because I'm the only person working here, 
Um, it's really just easy for me to look at that document, see where I need to go. I update it every three days, make sure that it's accurate and um, current, adding new projects at the bottom, you know, with dates of when they're coming in. Um, I try to keep my schedule very flexible in that um, sometimes I will book specific days for clients, but I typically just say, you know, let me know what day you think you're going to be ready. Um, and if I get the mixes, you know, within a week of that, just keep me posted. So I know I'll get started within five days of getting the mixes and you'll have the masters back within a week when we'll be corresponding that entire week throughout the process. Nice. And that, that tends to work. Um, I guess if it's, if it's not going to work, maybe hopefully you you know enough ahead of time to give heads up. I would really have to kind of, I, I would have to change things if there was someone else that I, I were working with. I have had an assistant here, um, which worked out great. And it almost in a sense uh, kind of encouraged me to be a little bit more, um, I don't know, just really organized in a way that was understandable to someone else. Right. So I can get... a. I can and do get a little lazy with how I'm doing things because it's just me. Because if, because I'm not being on top of this color coded list, uh, I have to like make up and spend a, an extra hour or two going through and, and really getting it back on track, then that's my bad and my fault. But if I were to have an assistant or someone else, I would have to stay on top of it all the time because there's someone else that I'm communicating with. And it's important to be clear. That's so true. In my experience, I've discovered that the way that I really um, refine my system and and get clear about it is by trying to explain it to somebody else. Yes. Yes. Absolutely. Um, so let's go to the closing question. Here is hypothetical, but we'll we'll take the Wayback Studio Machine. You're going to go back in time and find young Kim rocking out to uh, um, an indie rocker show up in Northampton, Mass. And you say, yeah. "Listen." Listen, lady, here's the thing you need to know to be a rock star of the recording studio yourself. What, what, what advice would you give yourself? Well, maybe not going back so far as to Northampton, but definitely in the mastering days, it would be don't be afraid to ask questions. You know, And that's something that I, I still struggle with now. Uh, and the way that I concealed um, my, my inability to really ask questions back in the day when I started is I did a lot of reading online. So if I didn't know something... I'd either take a mental note or I'd write it down and I would go online and before Google was, you know, air quotes, Google, uh, I went online and, and scoured for answers to things that didn't quite make sense to me um, until I figured it out because I just felt like not knowing it, asking this person, they'll probably going to think that I should know this. And then they're going to tell me that I shouldn't be doing what I'm doing. You know, all these things that go through your head and what kind of drive you to feel that way and not want to ask questions, man, it's so, it's so false and it's so not true. And people, um, in my experience, as I've grown and, um, worked more, people just, they want to share. People are just so cool and way more laid back coming from West West side in those days and going out on my own was really difficult for me. Um, and it was mostly because I felt kind of isolated and, and on my own. Uh, and I knew steps that I needed to take to change that, which was getting out there, speaking on panels, meeting people. But it was still really difficult. Um, and I met some people in the audio industry that live near me. Um, one of them I'm still very, very good friends with. His name is Gil Griffiths. He runs Wave Distro. 
And he now distributes the Whitestone P331. Nice. But he, you know, he's been in the audio industry for so long. He distributes um, Empirical Labs gear and knows Dave Durr. And Dave Durr became my friend. All these people that I thought would, I don't know, judge me or ask me questions to see if I really knew what I was doing. No, no. They just want to know that you're a good person. You know, what kind of work are you doing? Oh, let me listen to it. That's cool. And then it just, it, it was... It was pretty life-changing to finally get out there and realize that people were not as uptight as I thought they were. And so to kind of realize that sooner would have helped me with a whole lot of, um, I don't know, kind of self-awareness to just be a little less concerned about what other people thought and just be more concerned about learning, man. Everybody's learning always, constantly. Technology is changing and, and making sure of that. Um, that's great uh, to hear. And um, when you talk about asking more questions, do you do you have do you want to clarify at all for anybody who's listening who's maybe you know considering internship? What kind of questions and when to ask them? Oh, man, that's such a such a broad question because there's so many different uh, environments you can be in when you're getting started in the studio. You know, definitely during a session, if there's a client there, is not a time to be asking questions. Um, if you're assisting on a session, you want to have a notepad and write down questions and ask them or ask somebody that's not around the client these questions. Um, but certainly if you're working one-on-one with a, with a you know, a head engineer or someone else and, and it's not like working time and there's a client there, ask questions whenever. Um, you're in conversation and you don't know something, you know, just act in the conversation. Don't be rude, but yeah, don't don't be embarrassed to ask anything. And it's hard. It's I understand it's easier said than done in some cases. Um, but the more you practice it, the easier it gets, which is also a little interesting. Um, and you don't really believe that until you get there. You just you know ask more questions than than you're talking about. It's kind of a, a really great thing. But yeah. that that was a very difficult very difficult for me back in the day and still today is, you know, things change so much. Someone's talking about something and you're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. But you walk away from the conversation. Like I have no idea what they were talking about. <laughs> I know. I know. Um, and I guess you've reminded me, did we really not used to have Google? Uh, uh, you know, back in the day. Yeah. I wasn't there. This was before, I guess, even iPhones, dare I but, say. But surely we had YouTube, right? And we could just learn anything by going there. So I don't, my, I really, the, my memories of using the computer for searches really only started when I started interning at, at Allen Studio uh, yeah. because I was in front of a computer all day. Prior to that, I didn't have a job that required internet all the time. So simultaneously, I'm learning about mastering, but I'm also learning how to troubleshoot problems and problems not only with mastering, but problems with computers and hard drives and software. Man, like... They keep coming. Right, you would, uh, you would up upgrade the operating system on the Mac, but then you couldn't use the Pro Tools anymore so that you had to uninstall the updated operating system and reinstall Pro Tools. I mean, this is, we would waste one, two days with these mistakes back in the early days of um, digital audio and getting it all to run seamlessly. And it, it well, Those was, computers took a long time to start up too. Well, yeah. And you have not to only, restart all the time. Absolutely. But being able to find answers to this information online and and that being a really important tool to, you know, if I can't ask Alan a question because something's going wrong with his computer or with Pro Tools, he's in an attended session. 
I got to figure it out. How am I going to figure it out? I'm going to use the internet and I'm just going to find the right answer and then solve the problem. That's good. Good advice. Um, well, uh, Kim, thank you so much for being on Recording Studio Rockstars with us. This has been really awesome. And you are a natural. Thank you, man. I had, this is great. I had a great time. Well, we're glad to have you here. Please let the Rockstars know how they can find you online and follow you. How can they learn more about Whitestone? Uh, so you can, it. yeah, you can go to whitestoneaudio.com um, to get more info about the P331. Uh, we'll also be at SummerNAM in Nashville um, with the unit so that if anybody's local to that area, they can come see it. You can find me and mastering at knackmastering.com. Um, also on Facebook, you can just search Knack Mastering. You can search Whitestone Audio. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram. Nice. Now, Knack with a K, right? Correct. K-N-A-C-K. All right, cool. My Sharona. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, cool. Awesome. Kim, thanks so much for joining us on the show. Really fun to hang out with you. And I hope you enjoy the rest of your day with your family looking out the window at the lake. Yeah, Or doing so whatever much. you're going to do next. Thanks so much, Lurch. All right, cool, great. We'll talk to you soon, and we'll see you around the studio. All right, bye. Cheers. Thanks so much for listening to Recording Studio Rockstars. If you enjoyed the show and want to help make it better, then please share this episode with your friends on social media and leave a rating and review on iTunes to help the podcast reach more rock stars like yourself. You can click directly over to iTunes or go to rsrockstars.com review for an easy explanation. And remember to hit the subscribe button to keep up with weekly episodes. And if you're ready to make your best record ever now, then head over to Recording Studio Rockstars Academy, where you can start with my free course at mixmasterbundle.com and if you want more free content from recording studio rockstars all you have to do is go to rsrockstars.com email again that's rsrockstars.com email to enter your name and email and i'll keep you in the loop with articles videos podcast updates and even free gear giveaways for your studio just look for the link in the show notes below thanks so much for listening and thanks for being a rockstar i'm lid shaw and this is recording studio rockstars now go make make great music.